Hey folks, it's Jesse, the founder of MaxFun. Since we postponed our annual Max Fun Drive in mid-March, we have gotten a lot of questions about if and when we'd be rescheduling it. And honestly, we've been asking ourselves the same thing. Well, now we have an answer for you. The 2020 Max Fun Drive will start on July 13th. That's coming up soon. We decided to have the drive now because it's always brought a lot of joy and excitement to our community and certainly to us. And to be totally honest, it's also the main source of income for some of our hosts. Like pretty much everything right now, this year's drive is going to be a little different. Uh, we'll still be bringing you very special episodes, fun community activities, premium thank you gifts. But we also know it's a weird time and for some folks, a really difficult one. Some people are in a position to become new or upgrading members. Others can't right now. And that is okay. We'll have ways for you to support Max Fun at every level, including some ways that won't cost you anything. We're also going to run the drive for four weeks instead of two. We didn't think it was a good time to be rushing anybody, and uh, having a longer drive lets us be a little more low-key in our drive pitch. It also gives us more time to do fun stuff, like the weekly live streams we'll be putting on for charity throughout the drive. Most importantly, we want the 2020 Max Fun Drive to highlight all the ways we support each other and our communities. We also want to show how grateful we are to you for making all the work that we do possible. Stay safe. We'll see you July 13th for the Max Fun Drive. Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that has influenced their own work in some small way. And uh, you may already know we are recording remotely. Uh, I'm in my bedroom, and so uh, the cat is asleep. I think that she should be fine. The birds seem to be gone, so that, that'll be okay, I hope. Um, so. Everything else is basically the same, except for our guest today is different. We have uh, someone I'm very excited to have here, writer-director Gina Prince-Bythewood, and producer also. Hi! Hey. And I have two dogs and two boys, so there may be some organic interruptions. We'll see. Wow. You know, like, it, it'll just give us a really kind of, like, slice of life detail <laughs> of of what your quarantine is like, you know? There you go. <laughs> Um, so for those of you who need a refresher on Gina's career, please let me give you that very quickly. So Gina is an award-winning director, writer, producer who got her start in television writing for A Different World, South Central, Sweet Justice, and Felicity before she released her breakthrough di directorial debut, Love and Basketball. She followed up that romantic classic with authentic character-driven work in the films The Secret Life of Bees and Beyond the Lights, but... TV came calling again. She'd already been directing episodes of Girlfriends, The Bernie Mac Show, and Everybody Hates Chris. But in 2017, she and her husband, Reggie Rock Bythewood, served as series creators and executive producers for a 10-hour series called Shots Fired, examining the dangerous aftermath of two racially charged shootings in a small southern town. On the TV side, Gina also directed the pilot for Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, starring Olivia Holt and Aubrey Joseph as two teenagers with newly acquired superpowers. But now, Gina's got another feature coming out, this time for Netflix, so you can stream it at home. It's an action drama film called The Old Guard, starring Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane. 
The film is based on the popular comic book series created by author Greg Rucka and illustrator Leandro Fernandez and tells the story of four immortal warriors who've safeguarded Earth when they welcome a fifth to their crew and also discover that someone is onto their secret. So they've got some uh, planning and work to do. And uh, that should be coming out in July. Is that correct? What date? July 10th drops July globally. 10th. Yes. Okay. July 10th globally on Netflix. And because Gina wants to put her money where her mouth is, she also funds a scholarship for African-American students in the film program at UCLA, uh, her alma mater, where she graduated yes. from. So, Yes, indeed. Um, year in the life, you know, that's, that's just <laughs> very, uh, you're not tired, right? <laughs> I do no? actually need a nap. It's been a two-year journey with the old guard. And uh, I finish next week. Finally, in watching the theatrical print, which I'm super excited about, because in addition to dropping on Netflix, it will get some theatrical. And um, I think it's a great way to end the journey to be able to see it beautifully on the big screen with perfect sound. Yeah. I mean, it's a big movie. It's a, and by, I mean, big, there's just a lot of big set pieces, sequences, and, you know, we'll get into all that later on. But, you know, you're one of the few who gets to see a movie in the theater right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so weird. Um, So, Gina, the movie that you chose to talk about today is also one that has a lot of big action set pieces things, and it is Man on Fire. And I was hoping that you could give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films, Mm -hmm. one that sticks out for you. I saw this film in the theater when it came out. Um, I'd always been a fan of Denzel and anything he puts out is, is dope. So, you know, I'm in the theater for him. The trailer just looked dope. I love action films, but the action films I identify most with are those um, who, which elevate the genre. And for me, that was an action drama and absolutely the emotional template I used for The Old Guard. Um, but what grabbed me so much is the relationship between Denzel's character and Dakota Fanning's character, this beautiful, I, honestly, I call it a love story and a love story mm-hmm. can have many connotations. For me, this was an absolute love story between you know, this this man who wants to die and a little girl who needs love and attention. And again, it's so beautifully weaved throughout. It's what connects me emotionally to it. I'm sobbing at the end. And uh, again, the performances were so dope in it. Um, mm-hmm. It just elevated, elevated the genre. Yeah, and we're going to get into a lot of that, especially the kind of process that Tony Scott had working with Denzel and Dakota together, because it's it, it's really yeah. special the way that they were allowed to, to vibe with one another, essentially. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen Man on Fire, today's episode will obviously give you some spoilers. That shouldn't stop you from <laughs> listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Man on Fire, this is your shot. And now that you're back, let me introduce Man on Fire with a quick synopsis for you. Written by Brian Helgelin and directed by Tony Scott for release in 2004, Man on Fire stars Denzel Washington as Creasy, a former U.S. Marine recon specialist. An assassin, basically. Uh, Creasy's an alcoholic, but secures work with a wealthy businessman and his American wife in Mexico City, guarding their daughter, played by Dakota Fanning. Your resume is quite impressive. 16 years of military experience, extensive counterterrorism work. I'm surprised anybody could afford you. What's the catch? I drink. How does that affect you? Coordination, reaction time, 
top professionals try to kidnap your daughter, I'll do the best I can, but the service will be on par with the pay. At first, Creasy is standoffish with the girl, Peta, just doing his job. He spirals so badly that he tries to shoot himself in the head, but it misfires. Maybe a sign? After that, he finds himself becoming a sort of father figure to young Peta. He actually smiles. Creasy, you're smiling. What? You were smiling. No. You were? No, I was not. You're not now, but you were. No, you were smiling. I wasn't smiling. You were. When? Like five seconds ago. I'm not smiling. Well, a second ago you were. You, no, you said five seconds ago. Now that's six. Six seconds ago I wasn't smiling. <laughs> okay, six ten sec seconds ago. Ten seconds ago I was smiling. Seconds, okay, in the next ten seconds, let's see who smiles first. So it is extremely distressing to him when one day Peta gets kidnapped on the street while Creasy gets shot while trying to protect her. And then he has to be protected himself from some crooked cops owned by the kidnapper, dubbed La Voz. Do you love your daughter, Senor Ramos? Yes. Yes. Do you want to see her again? Yes, I do. Senor, if your daughter's life is as important to you as it is to me, you will do as I say. The kidnappers put a ransom on the girl, and we see a drop-off of $10 million go awry when the crooked federal cops called La Hermanidad ambush and take the money. Those were all policemen. Bad judicial cops. Protected by... A brotherhood. Brotherhood. A brotherhood called La Hermandad. La Voz takes, uh, tells the family that Pita is toast. When Creasy gets out of the hospital finally, he vows to kill every last one of the La Hermandad, Hermanidad, and everyone seems to pretty much approve. What are you going to do? What I do best. I'm going to kill him. Anyone I was involved, anybody who profited from it, anybody who opens their eyes at me. You kill them all. By tracking license plates Peta once jotted down in her notebook, he gets to the man who dragged Peta away that day. He tortures and kills him, doing the same to every La, um, la Hermanidad he gets to. Until he reaches Fuentes, who tells him that, yeah, they did steal the money, but there was only 2.5 million in that bag. There was no 10 million dollars. There was two and a half in the box. The ransom was $10 million. They put it in two bags, five yeah. million in each bag, right? Two bags, two, but, but one has half paper. The other, only paper. <laughs> Maybe a men's stone. Whoever did it took it before the exchange. So Creasy confronts the Ramoses, and Peta's father confesses to staging the kidnapping to get $10 million of government money. But everything went wrong. I did it! I did it, Lisa! I agreed to the kidnapping! I did it for us! For the three of us! Creasy leaves him a gun, and the man kills himself. Some journalists helping uh, helping Creasy then identify who Lavos is, and uh, Creasy then retaliates by kidnapping Lavos's brother. Lavos reveals that Pita is actually still alive. I will give you her life for your life, and in exchange, I will get my life back. Who, what life? Whose life? The girls. And that he's willing to trade her for Creasy himself. Creasy agrees. They stage a trade-off. Creasy is able to say goodbye to Peta one last time. Right, your mother's waiting for you. She's right down here on the end of the bridge. Okay, you go home. 
he's shoved into a car and he dies. The policeman who helped Creasy then kills Lavos to end it all. That's it. But <laughs> there's a lot there. There's a lot of process. There's a lot of style. There's a lot of things that you can't really describe just from a synopsis. But mm-hmm. um, I wanted to get into, first off, I mean, you can't talk about this movie without getting really in-depth into Denzel Washington and his work as uh, an actor and then also his work Uh, essentially the types of projects that he chooses and when he chooses to take them. Mm -hmm. Um, So when Tony Scott was conceiving of this film, he'd already worked with Denzel Washington and Crimson Tide, but he was thinking about who he would cast in this role as crazy. And he said, quote, I started thinking about the cast and you think Gene Hackman, Robert De Niro, you know, and then I'm sitting in a doctor's suite and there's Denzel. I haven't seen him since Crimson Tide and he's wearing acupuncture needles in his knee and I'm getting a needle in my bum for something else. And I sat and talked with him. I didn't talk with him about the movie, but in talking with him, I said, damn, this is the way to go, end quote. And I think that's an interesting thing. Um, he could have gone a very easy Gene Hackman thing. And I think I could potentially see Gene Hackman in this role because he's played, you know, some other similar roles, something like Night Moves and, you know, Mm -hmm. earlier in his career, all those things. But in casting the person, not the actor, he found his kind of ultimate crazy. He wasn't Mm -hmm. looking, you know, just for like what Hollywood say, like, this is who this person is. He's looking at first off who I want to work with again, and that there's something untapped in Denzel Washington that he wants to get to, even after training mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And for for you, you know, like, what is that kind of casting process like? Are you, are you in that kind of mood where you want to find someone who is maybe bored with what they're doing and they want to do something different? They want to expand their roles? Like, how do you approach casting? Yeah, casting is... And I think somebody said it's 70% of directing. And I, I, I fully believe that casting is everything. Um, and I cast with my gut um, foremost. Well, I have four criteria. And uh, you have to have the craft. And that's something that is not always respected in Hollywood, which is surprising. Um, there's so much of that narrative of I've never taken an acting class and it's just mm-hmm. all natural and people celebrate that. But I want people who have trained um, because it is a craft. And when the two of us are in trouble in a scene and are struggling to find it, we can both fall upon that craft to to figure it out. Um, I need you to be bold. And that means being brave enough to give me all of yourself um, because that's what it takes for a great performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I need you to be a cool person that honestly <laughs> could that could absolutely be the first the first one. Um, I have a no asshole policy. I had a very bad experience with an actor early in my career, and yeah. I said I would never go through that again. Um, it absolutely poisons the entire experience. Um, it's too hard. It's too hard to make a film, and. It's also such a beautiful thing that we get to do. We get to tell stories. We get to create worlds and, and change perception and change culture. And it, it, I want everyone on board to, to want to do that and be that mm-hmm. and just be respectful. Be respectful of the process. Be respectful of the craft. Um, be respectful, respectful of your fellow actors. And um, 
as I said, never wanted to go through that again. So, um, you know, I mean, but like, uh, how do you test people to make sure that they're not an asshole? You, you, like, you take yeah. them out and see if they tip a waiter or like what? Well, you... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, you. You call around, and um, I did not do that on with this person because he was such a big star, and I I loved his work. I was excited. I go, oh my gosh, I got to work with this guy. Um, so I didn't, and I didn't think I was so early in my career. I hadn't dealt with an asshole yet. I didn't know that somebody could be that shitty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so once it happened, anytime I was up for a film, I would call around and I turned down a couple films in hearing about the behavior of a couple of some of our favorites, to, to be honest. Um, Damn. and it takes, it's so important for other directors to be honest. Uh, you have to be, and it's hard because you don't want your words to get out. You don't, you know, you feel bad about you may be keeping somebody from getting a job, but to to have no idea that someone can be that poisonous, it's it's a terrible way to spend six, seven, eight months. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm always honest, and I've been grateful to the people who were honest with me as well. Um, and then the last criteria is is being passionate about the story um, that we're telling. I want to feel that connective piece that you have because everything I write and direct, there's a piece of me in it, even if I haven't written it from scratch. I, mm-hmm. When I take a gig, it's because there was a guttural connection to the material for me. And I want that same uh, with the actors as well. And and you get that through, through conversation um, in the beginning. So uh yeah if you if you pass those four criteria then we are we are in it do you i mean once you cast someone some the process that tony scott went through as well that when he found that kind of magic person he would again go back into the script and make changes for Mm -hmm. that actor specifically in this case you had an actor who is african-american playing what he thought would be like a white person but the you know like his default but the things that they did mostly when they readjusted for him in the script for Denzel Washington had actually nothing to do with race. It just had to do with specifically who Denzel Washington was as a person and what mm-hmm. his strengths were. And specifically also a kind of, and we'll talk about this later too, a spirituality to the character that had lacked that Denzel Washington brought in because he was, you know, wanted this guy to have a kind of like, um, you know, a lapsed um, Christian uh, mm-hmm. kind of point of view and and a and a you know kind of like bible is warrior type of thing so those were the changes that they made specifically for him as an actor but that's i mean i think that's that's wonderful when someone can do that if you can really really tailor the script to this person and their strengths mm-hmm. you know it's interesting for me um given i i normally write what i direct and I spend so much time with the script, you know, year and a half, two years. Like I'm directing it every day, I'm writing, I'm hearing it. So mm-hmm. what's exciting foremost is to, to in an audition is hearing the words and hearing them the way that I had pictured it. But even more exciting is when an actor brings things to it I didn't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's the most exciting part for me. Um, my hope is that an actor comes in to embody this character that I have 
created so fully uh, in those years of writing um, mm-hmm. that I don't, at least in the work that I've done, I haven't tailored um, it to casting except for Beyond the Lights. And that was because Gugu was British. And oh. <laughs> um, the character was originally written as American and she came in and was doing it with an American accent. And once the audition was done, I just wanted to have a conversation and she dropped the accent and we just talked and we started talking about her upbringing. And and I was just, it was just suddenly like, this movie is so much about being your true self and authenticity. And I knew that Gugu was the one and it was like, why not, why not let her be her true self in this film? Yeah. And so the, and in making those changes, I thought it made it a better film, to be honest. Um, so in that case, that was a, a pretty big tailor. Um, but for the most part, I'm I'm hoping that an, that an actor, I, I see the character in the actor, and then it becomes this, this balance of, of pulling even more of that out on set. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Man on Fire and also uh, some of Gina's long history of movies and TV shows. We'll be right back. <laughs> have a lot of problems. How do you juggle your holds at the library? How do you decide what to read next? What do you do when you find out an author you love is a huge trash baby? I'm Brea Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. And we're the hosts of Reading Glasses. We're here to solve all your reader problems and along the way, help you figure out your reader wheelhouse, which are the things that will absolutely make you pick up a book. Our listener favorites tend to be magic and a woman on a journey. And also birds for some reason. Your reader doghouse. Yeah, that's the things that'll make you avoid a book. Ugh, love triangles stress me out so much. Reading Glasses. Every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Gina Prince Bythewood, and we are talking about Man on Fire. Uh, so, uh, I think maybe one of the things that people notice first off about Man on Fire is the very kind of frenetic energy that Tony Scott is bringing to this, which kind of marks a new period of his filmmaking. You know, some people call it like his green period because he's <laughs> doing a lot of experimental processes on yes. his films. Um, but, you know, uh, Denzel Washington was asked uh, really often if the kind of choppy style of this film was difficult for him as an actor. And he said, quote, it actually helps because what he does is the setups take longer because he's setting up four cameras usually, three to four cameras minimum. The advantage to that is he'll shoot a master and a close-up at the same time. So you feel a freedom as an actor. What mm. you what you're doing, he's gotta get. If it's something really good, you don't have to try and repeat it. He's going to grab honest moments when they happen. And I like to improvise and ad lib. So he was capturing a lot of those moments. What got tagged onto that was the reverse process film. And he cranks it so basically your dialogue's not going to be any good. I think we kind of fell into a rhythm of getting the scene with those four cameras or whatever amount of cameras we use, getting the coverage. And then that last setup would be to hand crank things just to get it. Or this other thing that we call, and I've seen pictures of this, Oh, there's other thing that we call the vomit comet, which would just spin around, end quote. <laughs> Have you seen the pictures of them getting directed on the set? No, I've got to see that. 
Because it's like, there's like a few videos that you can find, but like Denzel Washington is basically like on a Mm (laughs) merry-go-round. And then there's the cameras on the other end and they're just like spinning him around. (laughs) Like back and forth. That goes to the trusts, you know, absolutely for him to, you know, because it sounds crazy, but you have to believe, you know, I'm on this, this thing that's inducing vomit, but I believe that it is the best thing for the film and that Tony's going to use it in the right way. Yeah. And, you know, having a sense of humor that you can call out a vomit comment and be like, well, it's my job. That's what it is. We just get on this and we we film it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's fascinating what he's saying about the multi-camera setup. Um, Mm -hmm. We've talked about on the show before that it's a a luxury to have, you know, sometimes more than one camera. Um, But the greatest part that you get from it is the seamless, um, you know, ad-libbing, the improv that you get and the kind of genuine emotion because it's so hard to kind Mm -hmm. of nail that on first, second, third. Um, And I think here you can see it specifically in that great scene where they're, um, for instance, uh, talking about the smile. Yeah. And, you know, that like Denzel Washington is like saying that like, I'm not smiling. She's just like, you're definitely smiling. And and I think that that's a really, really lovely moment. And it probably would not have come off the same if they hadn't had four cameras going simultaneously to be able to catch that master and, and then the close-ups at the same time. Mm-hmm. You come from a multi-cam world because when you started on a different world, you were writing mm-hmm. for multi-cam stuff. Yeah. So, you know, which is also great for comedy because you're getting you know, the reaction, the joke, everything at the same time, and hopefully they can, you know, cut all mm-hmm. together. Is that something that you miss? <laughs> Is that mm-hmm. something that you, like, wish that you had more of in your life? Or, um, Well, I have to say, I, I do, I, I completely get what, what Tony and Denzel uh, were talking about and going for, because when, when you're shooting four cameras or even three cameras, you are you're able to capture those God, those those special moments that you don't have to then suddenly try and recreate on the on the other side when you're when you're quote unquote turning around it's mm-hmm. impossible almost to recreate that um but in in having definitely two cameras on when you have a scene with two people and um the actors like to try different things it it does i think give them more courage to do that and more freedom to do that because you know it's getting captured on both sides. And um, I mean, I love it. It's going to be hard to go back, you know, with, you know, my earlier films, I never had more than two cameras. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, I could only have two on certain days. Um, that's all we could afford. Where yeah. this one, it was always had three cameras and then a lot of times four. Um, and it, it just you're makes, doing a lot of action, so yeah, a lot of action. But I I brought it to the intimate scenes as well, which was great because also, um, yeah, as you're saying, you can get the close up and the two shot, and and I always love to get just an in- interesting angle as well to be able to get all that. And the actors know they don't have to do take after take after take because I want to keep moving the camera around. I mean, I do cut in my head a lot, but to have the freedom to be more creative as a director because you know um, and the actors know that they're not going to have to do a ton of takes for me to get what I want creatively. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really a, a beautiful thing. Um, and certainly then for action, of course, you've got to have that many cameras because you only have a couple shots at it. So um, capture it in as many cameras as you can. 
Yeah. I think Tony Scott was also saying that for him, it was great because, you know, the improv that he's doing was is with a child. Yeah. And the kind of like almost chaotic energy of a kid where you're just like, what are they going to say? I mean, there's entire mm. TV shows based on like, what are kids going to say? Yeah. So, um, you know, for him, it was the extra freedom of just being like, okay, if I'm working with a kid, like I can capture these great moments. He said, quote, three quarters of the smiling scene was off script. Once she said, you're smiling, it went off from there. That's one take. I used two cameras and I knew it was good. This was the second take that we did. Dueling cameras, but it enables you uh, when you're doing a movie about emotion, not having an actor repeat the performance. It's really hard to capture a second time around of emotion, end quote. And, you know, it, it's basically what you're saying of just this, there's a kind of a built intimacy in that oh, yeah. process. And also I was, I, I was blessed to be able to work with Dakota on The Secret Life of Bees. And her talent is surreal. I worked with her when she was 13. Um, and, you know, again, it, it, my love for her work was built from Man on Fire and seeing her in that. And I don't know where it come. I don't know where her talent come from. Um, but to see her <laughs> performance at 10. And yeah, I had read that also that, that so much of that scene was improvised. But that that's such a beautiful thing because that also says that these are two actors. Again, it's Denzel and then a, a, a girl who is that young having the ability to be so tuned into their characters that they can go off on an improv and, and have it be real and true to their characters and emotion, emotional. Like those are the beautiful moments that you're chasing mm -hmm. as a director. I mean, for me, I feel like when I'm on set, I'm chasing the perfect take. And uh, it's, it's so exciting when you actually see it. And again, to be able to have the freedom of just let the cameras run and let actors who are so in tune with their characters that it just comes. I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, the the other thing I thought was really interesting about this, and I'm, I'm curious what you've had on your sets working with Dakota or, or otherwise, that um, Denzel Washington became a kind of, um, uh, you know, godfather to her on set mm. and and really really became a kind of second parent to her in wow. in like the process of making you know that or just like he just cared for her so much so you have these kind of senior actors really mm -hmm. taking these younger actors under their wing and and hopefully making it just a a, a pleasant experience for all involved because mm -hmm. otherwise you know younger actor like Oof. it could go very awry they're not as experienced and but it's just a it was a very sweet process for them mm -hmm. yeah, i mean i certainly had that on my first film with alfrey woodard alfrey woodard is the queen and uh she was also honestly a mother figure to sanaa but also also to me i mean it was my first film I was scared to death to talk to Alfrey in the beginning. Like, how am I <laughs> going to direct her? How am I going to tell her how to do her job? So um, I was petrified and, and she broke through that and she was so helpful, so giving, so great. Um, I just learned so much from her and the relationship that she built with Sanaa, um, obviously it's mother, daughter on screen, but it was certainly that as well and uh you know just different scenes where i saw alfrey helping me as a director by helping to pull things out of sana so mm -hmm. um to to see that as you said 
if you don't have that organically, it can go really wrong, you know? And that's why, again, it's so important to do your due diligence and make sure that everyone on set are good people. Um, because yeah. you, you do want it that harmoniously. And you know, what if Denzel was an asshole? He could have damaged Dakota, you know? Um, so yeah. it's it's beautiful to hear that. And as you said earlier, there is a reason why directors work with the same people. And it's because you start to form a collective of, of folks who you know, respect the process, respect you, are great actors and, and make the, pro- the process fun. We're gonna take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more Man on Fire and also some more Gina stuff. We'll be right back. Rocket Ship One, this is Mission Control. Come in. This is Rocket Ship One, go ahead. Rocket Ship, what's your status on Max Fun Drive? Shouldn't we have seen it by now? Sorry about that, Mission Control. Turns out I miscalculated. Current projected ETA for Max Fun Drive is. July 13, but it looks different. It'll be for four weeks, so it's longer than expected, but all readings point to low key. Oh, that'll be good. But can you verify that there are still special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? Verified. Sweet gifts for new and upgrading members, plus amazing new episodes and even special weekly live streams for charity. Happy that. Rocket ship, can you confirm ETA for Max Fun Drive? 90% probability of Max Fun Drive from July 13 to August 7. Did you say 90%? There were a couple of decimal places and I might have carried a zero wrong. I'm just gonna pencil in July 13 to August 7. Mission control out. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, joined today by Gina Prince-Bythewood, talking about Man on Fire. So one of the things that you were bringing up, too, is that um, the way that he uses City of God as an influence, but then reinvents um, these textures for his own style, his own look. So you can see the basis of City of, uh, the basis of City of God, but then you only see Tony Scott when you see the final project. So I wanted to talk a little bit about his editor, Christian Wagner, um, worked with him on a bunch of stuff. And the way that he treated working with Tony Scott was that they were experimenting every day of their career together. So um, for this one, he said, quote, we treated that film as if it were a science experiment. What could we do on any given day? Tony spent six months researching film stocks, and as usual, he pulled from his previous experiences. On Spy Game, he wanted each era to have a different visual signature, and the idea with Man on Fire was to make something that had its own unique visual identity, which felt bold and uncompromising. He and Paul Cameron were using 16mm hand crank cameras, and they shot over 2 million feet of film while in production. We were transforming the footage on a daily basis as Tony wanted the film to have a roughed up nine inch nails aesthetic. Uh, I had to throw away every lesson I had ever learned about editing while I was cutting Man on Fire. Like JFK and some of the stuff that Oliver Stone had already done, we went for something non-linear and avant-garde. Being normal just wasn't going to cut it. And Pietro Scalia and Joe Hutching are heroes of mine, so this was my chance to do something along their lines too, end quote. Two million feet of film in yeah, production. I can't even fathom uh, 
that. But what I, I love about what you just said is, is his relationship with the editor. And, and again, the fact that they were in this together, it really, it really is a partnership, certainly your DP, uh, but also editor um, and mm-hmm. how important that is. And, and, you know, the fact that there was a vision and, and they were going to figure it out together and how important that relationship is. I mean, I think about my editor, Terrilyn Shropshire, who's cut every single thing I've done except for disappearing acts. Um, so that's features and that's that's um, pilots and that's short mm-hmm. films, um, you know, wedding video. Like <laughs> he's just done, <laughs> he's done all of it. And Birth video, wedding video, <laughs> anniversary party. <laughs> so, you, you know, you build this trust between you and, and you want to push each other. Um, which is what I love. Like I'm still learning as a filmmaker um, and I want to be pushed and I want to grow and I want to try things. And you need a partner in that you've got, can you imagine with Tony Scott having these ideas and having the editor that's saying that can't work. That's never been done. I don't understand this. Yeah. Like you can't, you want someone to be as excited about trying it as you. And it's certainly the relationship that I'm lucky enough to have. And, you know, for, to, to hear about that, I mean, again, we when when I sat in Men on Fire, like I hadn't, I hadn't uh, seen it before. That's what was so exciting. Not only am I feeling so much because I love the story so much, and the story kept surprising me, and I didn't see the twist coming in uh, in the film. But visually, it was like I'm just sitting back like this in my seat. It just felt so full and. Like it never, the camera never stopped moving. And normally for me, that can be annoying. But here it wasn't because it, it fed into the urgency of uh, the situation that and the tension that you you knew that Peter was going to get, get um, jacked. You knew it was going to happen. You just didn't know when. And so there was always this, this, this tension and urgency and the camera absolutely fed into that and in the way that it was shot in the, in the different, film stocks it was just your eyes just never stopped taking everything in and you're 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 just always looking at every element of the screen and and uh it made it kind of puts you into the world of what Denzel was going through it was an amazing way of the camera being able to help you tell the story as opposed to distracting you from the story yeah I you know I think also you were talking you know to bring it back to having someone who's not going to say know who's going to be your partner on this. Um, we'll cover that first because um, the thing that uh, that Christian Wagner was saying was that they knew how to argue together already. Mm-hmm. And he said, quote, the first cut of Man on Fire wasn't nearly as stylish. Tony would keep coming in and saying, let's try this. And we basically cut that entire film together. He was with me every step of the way. It was a complete collaboration. There were many heated days and nights while working on that movie, but how could that not have been the case? We were making an acid trip of a film with flash forwards <laughs> and every trick you could think of. And the great thing is our creative fights, they'd end 30 seconds after they started because it was always about the work and doing something sensational for people. Tony had a shoot from the hip mentality, which I always loved and respected, end quote. It's another, I mean, like, that's what you want in a romantic relationship and a professional (laughs) relationship, how to fight and, uh, and how to fight healthy. (laughs) It's very important. And, and again, the fact that I have been with the same editor for my first film to now this big giant film, the fact that we got to take this journey together, um, 
it's so beautiful, especially as female collaborators. It, you know, very few women get the opportunity to do an action film. Very few female editors get this opportunity. Uh, and then put on top of that, Black female director, Black female editor, this is the first. I'm the first, she's the first. And uh, to be able to be able to do it together and knowing that we got here because we've trusted each other for 20 years now um, and that we make each other better, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing and I'm excited. I'm excited for her um, that she, you know, she is now on those elusive lists. I hate that though, because God help me if she takes another film and, and, and I get my green light then we're going to have to fight for real. Uh, but, <laughs> She'll but I, never I abandon you. <laughs> <laughs> you but it's, me. I mean, it's true, though. I think that some people don't realize how rare it is to find a Black woman who has directed an action film. Because if you look, it's been. you. And then there's, you know, Vic Mahoney probably is going to be on that list very, very shortly. Yeah, Vic, you know? Vic just got hers. I'm super hyped for Vic. Her her movie sounds dope for Paramount. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the list is growing, but it, <laughs> it's pretty small. <laughs> it's, it's a list of one and a half to two now. <laughs> no, but I will say this year excited me and that, you know, the pandemic has fucked with a lot. But one of the things that I was excited about was this did feel like a watershed here for female directors in the big sandbox. Um, there are about five or six of us. It has never happened before to have this many women doing tent pool movies. And now everything has had to, to move off, which is just really disappointing because as I said, it could, it could be a game changer. Uh, Patty Jenkins, I give all praise to because her success, her making a good film when there was such tremendous pressure on her, like if she failed, I would not be sitting here. You know, Nikki Carroll probably wouldn't be sitting there. Kate Shortland wouldn't be sitting here. But Patty did it and did it so well. And that suddenly, I'm saying open floodgates and then you're like, oh, well, it's five. But still, yeah, we're going still from more, zero. So much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when the bar is literally on the floor. But, you know, going from zero to five or six in, in Hollywood, that is a watershed moment and uh i'm just excited for their films to come out um because i love the aesthetic that we bring i love when you look at what patty the way patty shot wonder woman shot gal as opposed to the way that gal was shot in justice league tells you everything you need to know about the difference between the female and the male gaze i was offended like pissed at the way that the gal was shot all these shots from down low from mm -hmm. behind like what are you doing yeah patty she was always heroic she yeah it's not always evident to some people unless you see them side by side and then you're like <laughs> oh yeah i think i know what you're talking about like i don't like to think in terms of dichotomies but there is such a thing as a female gaze and a male gaze and it's like mm. uh, i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about man on fire and your new film the old guard and again people can see it on netflix um july 10th correct yes keep a lookout for the old guard and thank you so much for joining us today 
Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Uh, as you know, we've been doing something a little different at the end of each episode. I've just been giving a staff pick of a recommendation of a film directed by a woman. Any film, any woman. So the movie that I am recommending today is actually one that is, you know, tangentially related to some of the things that Gina and I were talking about because Alfre Woodard is in it and it's one of her best performances, I'd say, um, you know, in her entire career. It is from Chinonye Chuku's Clemency. Um, for some reason, that movie kind of flew under the radar of awards voting bodies, but it's a complex morality tale about a black prison warden who's who's buried her conscience um, over the years by executing multiple prisoners until the sins of her past just kind of rise to the surface and begin to torment her. She's got something different that she has to deal with on this one. Um, it's a film where you look at this lead performance and you wonder how the hell people weren't talking about this constantly. And of course, if you're on film Twitter or in Involved in that, you know, you probably heard people talking about it. But in the larger world, it is a huge missed opportunity for people to see, you know, what acting is. And so please check that out. Uh, you can rent it pretty much anywhere right now. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. I did it! MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.